In our last episode, we discussed with Dr. Dana Lease how to decipher sports nutrition information that you come across. And Dana shared with us her five-step process for filtering that information. One of those steps was to figure out what is the cost and the benefits of different nutrition strategies and your return on investment, if you like. So today, we're going to have a look at some of the most common nutrition strategies that can be employed to improve performance on race day. We'll discuss some of the pros and cons from a practical perspective and find out what the science says about quantifying the actual performance benefits that you might expect to get from each one. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective around that. Today, it's episode 62. What is the quantifiable benefit of sports nutrition strategies? Before we get into that though, Steph, how are you going this week? I'm going good. I'm... um... I think I've had all the adrenaline pumped out of me Al, from watching the Matildas game and, yeah, maybe a little bit excited about tonight's game as well. But, like, it gets so stressed in this house. Like, <laughs> the dogs don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, by the time people listen to this, it'll be over. Yeah, I know. And fingers crossed we have a amazing result for, for the Aussies um, and we yep. get a public holiday down the track. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> what about awesome. you? How are you going? Yeah, good. We've had our first people in the lab for the, the study that we've been talking mm-hmm. about. So that's been good. So first one's done their first trial and then uh, coming back for the second trial next week and another one coming in for their first trial next week. So yeah, it's the rubbers hit the road from from that perspective. But again, if there are any runners or triathletes in Melbourne that want to look at pre-exercise hydration and strategies to try and improve that and whether it translates into performance benefits, we'd love to to have you in the lab at Monash Uni. You can get in touch with us. If you have a look on social media, you'll see the details for that study and you can get in touch via there. You can DM us on uh, Twitter or Instagram as well, and we can put you in contact with all the information. Mm, and then that can help add to this podcast episode here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll have one about that when it's all all run and one. Yeah. Uh, but we've also had, speaking of social media and, and things related, we've had a couple of new five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. So thank you to those who have left those ratings. The actual star ratings are anonymous, so we don't know who those people are. We can't thank them. Uh, we've also had one new review written review as well on Apple Podcasts. So that person will be in the running now to win a free copy of our ebook when it launches. And I guess on that topic, speaking of the ebook, we're officially into the final stages of formatting and editing for that book finally. So it is only a few weeks away from launch now, which is fantastic. So we said back in March it'll be ready at the end of April. <laughs> it's been a while. I think uh, life has gotten in the way of it, unfortunately, for both of us, Steph, for various reasons. But uh, yeah, we're, we're finally back on track now. So looking forward to, to getting that all done. 
So we'll have some information maybe next episode, but probably the one after uh, with some more details about how you can pre-order a copy and get your hands on that when it becomes available. And that ebook really summarizes the first two years of this podcast, episodes one through to 52. So it's actually slightly more than two years worth in there. And it includes practical tips and strategies. It has quotes from many of the experts and guest athletes that we've had on the podcast. And I think it'll be a real resource for any runner, cyclist or triathlete out there. So really looking forward to getting that finished and getting into people's hot little hands. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, just a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Maybe we'll be getting into the Instagram threads owl. I've only just added that on my app today, so I have to learn learn all of that jazz. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So today's episode, episode 62, what's the quantifiable benefit of sports nutrition strategies? Yeah, yep. so this is going to be an in-house episode. You probably heard before that we didn't talk about any guests. And I guess it's really designed to follow on from our last one with Dr. Dana Lease, where she talked about deciphering sports nutrition information. So she had that five-step process I mentioned in the introduction, and one of those was about looking at, I guess, the, the pros and cons, the potential benefits of any particular strategy or information that you're looking at, and really trying to decide what your potential return on investment is. So... I guess that's not always an obvious question or an easy question to answer. So what we thought we'd do today is take a whole bunch of sports nutrition strategies and try and put into numbers for you what the expected return might be so you can decide whether it is worth investing your time and effort into. But if you haven't already, I'd suggest going back and having a listen to our last episode, episode 61, first just to get a little bit more context around this with Dana, and then you can come back to this one and, and it'll all make a bit more sense. Mm. Yep, yep. And then also it can be one, I think, for athletes in terms of understanding whether it might be worth forking out a bit of money to go and see a sports dietitian and get advice in these specific areas and what that benefit might be compared to potentially spending money in other areas. So they'll learn that in, yep. in this podcast for sure. So. Yep. This topic's going to be quite interesting to, to people. Can you explain where the idea came from in the first place? Yeah, sure. So this actually goes back almost 15 years now, actually. But back in about 2011, I was writing regularly for Cycling Tips, although the guys at Escape Collective will now, now call that the other publication uh, because of everything that's happened. We won't go there. But yeah, back in 2011, there was an article there looking at some work that had been done in the wind tunnel, looking at relative performance benefits of different types of equipment to cycling time trial performance. So they uh, there was a study that had kind of modelled based on wind tunnel results, the potential beneficial effects or the, the percentage benefit of things like aero helmets, dialing in your aerodynamic position, disc wheels, skin suits, these kind of things on a 40 kilometer time trial. And so you could then look at that and say, okay, well, a skin suit gives me this percentage benefit, but a disc wheel gives me this percentage benefit and an aero position gives me this percentage benefit. And then you could sort of weigh up those and go, well, 
this one costs this much and gives me this benefit. This one's a lot cheaper and gives me a similar benefit or the same. So therefore, that's going to give me more bang for my buck or better return on my investment. So that's kind of where the original idea came from. And then I sort of got interested in that. I saw that article and thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how that would play out from a nutrition perspective. So again, this is back in 2011, 2012. And so I applied that same principle with the evidence that was available at that time to try and compare different nutrition strategies and even compare them to those equipment strategies. So we could look at things like the effect of consuming carbohydrate during exercise, the effect of adequate hydration, things like caffeine supplementation, nitrates or beetroot juice supplementation, all these sorts of things, and try and get a sense of where they sat compared to, you know, forking out bucket loads of money on a new disc wheel or a skin suit or, you know, having a wind tunnel test to get your aero position perfect and all those kinds of things. So as we were going through and discussing with Dana last week around sort of her five points, one of those key ones was that return on investment. And I guess that has multiple parts to that. There's the investment in terms of cost when it comes to equipment, but in terms of nutrition, sometimes it is cost, but sometimes it's also convenience in terms of if it's easy or difficult to do. Sometimes it's sort of practical things. Sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's potential downsides or side effects of a nutrition strategy as well. So we need to think about all those sorts of things. And then hopefully that can give you some idea of, you know, which strategies maybe you should prioritize over other strategies to get the best bang for your buck. So, yeah, I, I put all this together into a presentation. I was asked to do a, a public lecture for Sports Dietitians Australia back in 2013 at their conference in Melbourne. And I remember presenting there. Uh, and talking about exactly this. Um, there's obviously been a lot more research done since then, a lot more information that we have available. And so, you know, it was, it was a good time to kind of revisit that. And also it fits nicely with with the context of what Dana talked about in the last episode. Yeah. yeah. And so what are some of the caveats or considerations that we need to make when we compare these different types of strategies? Yeah, yeah, it's it's never going to be a perfect science, that's for sure. Uh, I guess there's a few different things we need to consider before we get into actual strategies and, and numbers. I guess the first thing is that, you know, when you see a, a, a paper published around a particular strategy, let's just say, for example, caffeine supplementation on performance, I, I guess the thing is that the headline will usually be the mean difference, so the average for all the people in the study. And so what we need to appreciate is that, Sometimes there's a big variation in there. Sometimes there isn't, but sometimes there is. And so the effects of a particular strategy may be different in different people. And that could be for different reasons. It could be differences in age, differences between males and females. It could be differences in highly trained people versus relative beginners to the sport. It could be around the level of competition. Um, there's a whole bunch of different factors in there that might mean that the results can't be generalized from one group to another or you know within a study there might be variation between people that were in the study as well and so generally we're reporting the average values but some people may get even more benefit some people may get less or even no benefit and occasionally some people actually get a detrimental effect as well so it is something that we do need to to consider when we're thinking about this the other thing i guess is we think about the types of studies and the types of performance measures that are done in these studies what I've pulled out for here is mostly uh, time trial studies. And 
you know, there's often been talk in uh, scientific circles that this is probably the, the best kind of study when you're looking at performance measures, but it is a very specific type of performance test. So time trial basically is like a race. You, you have a certain distance or amount of work that you've got to do and you've got to do it as quickly as possible, as opposed to, you know, the other one that's often used in research is a time to exhaustion test. So a time to exhaustion test is basically where you go at a certain speed or power or intensity and you go for as long as you can. And it's how long can you go for. So a lot of people have argued over the years that, you know, time to exhaustion is completely different to the real world because in the real world you have a set distance and you've got to do it as fast as you can. But there are certainly situations, and, and some people have commented on this in more recent years, that probably do resemble a time to exhaustion type effort in the real world. Um, some examples of that might be when you watch the Tour de France and you've got all the guys on the front going up a big mountain climb and one by one they all get popped off the back until there's only a few left. That is essentially like a time to exhaustion. Everyone's going at a certain power output and you just see how long you can hold on. There may be examples of that in things like marathon running, for example, where you know at the elite level, in the men's, for example, it's, it's time to exhaustion at Kipchoge's pace, isn't it? It's everyone just tries to hang with Kipchoge until they can't anymore in a lot of those races. So that can be an example that may resemble more like a time to exhaustion test than a time trial. I guess when we're uh, looking at the benefits or the like percentage benefits in performance, we do need to keep in mind that you do see very different kinds of numbers in these two different study designs. So in time trial studies, you tend to see much smaller percentage differences than you see in time to exhaustion. So time to exhaustion, you might see a difference of 10 or 15%, but in a time trial, that equates to only a difference of maybe 2 or 3% in terms of performance. So we just need to bear that in mind. And just you know, if you are looking at information in studies, understand what sort of performance test was done because you can't directly compare the two. I guess the other thing to consider is that you know a lot of these studies, not all of them, but the majority of them are based on laboratory cycle ergometer performance. So getting in on a bike in the lab and measuring performance. There's actually not that many performance studies that use running. And the reason for that is obviously if you think about a time trial, to make it realistic, you want to be in a scenario where the person unconsciously speeds up and slows down and adjusts their pace as they go. But that doesn't really work on a treadmill because the treadmill doesn't change pace automatically. You know, you've got to physically push the buttons to change the speed on the treadmill. And so we generally don't see as many time trials done on the treadmill for that reason. What you do see sometimes is what's called a distance trial, where you might be how far can you go in a certain amount of time, and then you can adjust the speed up and down, or more that time to exhaustion test. So you can sit on a certain speed and how, how long can you go until you can't anymore. Is probably more common with with the running trials than in cycling. Cycling, obviously, with power outputs and things, you can measure things a bit more precisely as well. I guess one of the other caveats is that the effects that you do see in these studies may be very specific, not only to the different type of person in the study compared to maybe who you are and are you the same type of person or not, but also the conditions that are used in the studies. So, for example, the temperature and humidity, is it in a hot environment or a cold environment? How does that compare to what you're going to be competing in? One of the important ones also is exercise intensity and duration, and obviously running versus cycling we just talked about. I guess probably the most common study design when you look at performance tests in endurance performance trials 
certainly when it comes to nutrition, is often this kind of what's called a preload phase. So that might be where you run or ride at a sort of a low to moderate intensity for a period of time, sometimes two hours. Very occasionally, there's been a couple of studies that have gone out to as long as five hours preload. And that's usually designed to you know, partly mimic the duration of an event, but partly also if you're studying hydration, for example, you want to get people dehydrated or not, depending on how much they're drinking, before you do your performance test. So that preload part is designed to then create that difference in hydration or the difference in um, you know, carbohydrate stores or you know, whatever it is that you're studying in that particular thing. And then at the end of that preload, you do the performance test, so like a time trial or something. Now, one of the issues I think in some of these studies, or in most of these studies really, is that that time trial is usually done at a much higher intensity than the preload and a much higher intensity than a lot of people would do a race effort of that duration. So for example, at the end of you know two hours, which is probably the most common duration of these preloads, you might then do a performance test that goes from anywhere from 10 to 40 minutes, remembering that people are going as hard as they can for that period of time. So you know a 10 to 40 minute effort where you're giving everything for that period of time is really a you know it's above threshold for most people so that probably doesn't reflect a typical race pace or intensity if you're going to go and do Ironman or ultra running or um, even you know marathon running um, for the, the you know three hour plus marathon runners that kind of thing so it's maybe an effort that doesn't necessarily reflect how a lot of people actually compete so we just need to, to bear that in mind I think one of the reasons for that is is a practical reason. It's because it's hard to get people in the lab and give consistently their maximum effort if you're then going to make them do that over a period of two hours or longer. Like if you've got people in the lab to do a three-hour time trial that lasts about three hours, how can you be confident that they're actually giving their all over that entire duration? Very hard motivation-wise in the lab where it might be uncomfortable on the bike, that kind of thing. So there's there's reasons that they do that from practical perspective and also because a lot of this research is done by people that are doing research for Olympic sports, which are generally shorter duration, higher intensity. So it meets the needs of the athletes that they work with, but it doesn't necessarily meet the needs of most people in mass participation events that are doing much longer distances at at lower intensities or, or slower paces than you know the, your traditional Olympic um, kind of distances in in different sports. What it may reflect though is is sports like road cycling, where you might sit in a peloton all day, particularly in pro cycling, at a relatively low to moderate intensity but then you have to light it up in the last half an hour on a climb or you know into a sprint finish or something like that but it really probably doesn't represent a lot of the mass participation endurance sports your running events your triathlons your mountain bike events and even you know road cycling things like grand fondos and, and that kind of thing uh, the effects also are not necessarily additive. So we can't simply assume that if you get a 2% benefit from this strategy and a 2% benefit from this strategy, if we do both of those strategies, we're going to get a 4% benefit. In this case, 2 plus 2 doesn't necessarily equal 4. And that's probably especially true for the ergogenic supplements, which we'll, we'll get to a little bit later on. And there has been studies of you know combining supplements and what they find is 1 plus 1 doesn't equal 2 in those cases. It may be for things like carbohydrate, fueling and hydration, but maybe not so much for the supplements. So we do need to bear that in mind as well. In terms of that number, you know, 2% number, 2% performance benefit, if we quote that number, 
like 2% people go, that's nothing, like 2%. That's not impressive at all. And it doesn't sound very impressive at first, but I guess when you consider what 2% of a race finish time actually looks like in different events, it starts to become clear what that might actually look like in the real world when you translate that into time. So I've pulled out a couple of examples here. Obviously, we've just had the UCI Road World Championships for, for road cycling in the individual time trial in the men's. So Remco Evenepoel won that event and 2% of his time was 66.4 seconds. So if, if you can imagine he was 66.4 seconds slower because he didn't do something that would be a 2% benefit, the difference there in terms of what that time would have meant is he would have finished third instead of first as an example. For the women's marathon world record, another example, 2% of that is 2 minutes and 41 seconds. So you can imagine what difference that would make in terms of finishing again in a major, you know, city marathon or a world championships or Olympics or something, two, you know, almost 3 minutes is pretty substantial in terms of potential finishing positions. If you think about an Ironman, maybe a high-level age grouper who's finishing in sort of nine and a half hours, you know, 2% of that is about 11 and a half minutes. Or if you're thinking about an ultra marathon, maybe with like a 15-hour finish time, 2% of that is 18 minutes. So that gives you just a little bit of perspective of how big or small these kind of differences are and whether that's going to be important to you or not. Because for some people, that is absolutely important. And some people, you're like, oh, I don't really care. And again, that plays into that return on investment. Uh, the effects found in studies are partly limited by our ability to measure actual changes in performance from one trial to another in the lab. And it's generally considered that we're probably not very good or that the techniques and the equipment that we use is not really accurate or reliable enough to detect changes in performance of less than about 1% between different conditions or different supplements or trials or whatever it is in the lab. So if we think about in the real world, differences of less than 1% might be really important, particularly at the sharp end of competitive events, but is probably something that we can't actually detect in the lab and, and in studies. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And there can be obviously differences in findings between studies of, of very similar things, of, you know, different caffeine studies or different hydration studies, for example. And so where there have been multiple studies done on a particular strategy, obviously we prefer to look at a meta-analysis where you've statistically analysed them all combined together. So we've done that here where possible. We've tried to use meta-analyses where that information is available here. I guess one of the downsides, though, to the meta-analysis is sometimes it tends to then end up mashing together types of studies that are actually quite different. So it could be that they're, you know, mashing together like a 5K running study with a marathon running study, very different kind of events, but they get mashed together to give you an overall number in terms of performance benefit. So it gives you this nice summary number. That's great. But maybe there's going to be differences in how this strategy works in a 5K race as it does in a marathon. As one example, it might also be mashing together um, different doses of a particular nutrient or supplement. It might be mashing together different levels of athletes from recreational to world class. It might be mashing together different types of exercise, running and cycling, for example. So it is one thing we just need to consider here is with a meta-analysis, yes, it gives us one nice figure. Yes, it summarizes a whole group of studies on a particular strategy. But depending on the diversity in these studies, that may be a good thing or maybe it might be actually a potential weakness in terms of how we can take that number and use it. Yeah. So 
now we know what we need to consider when we're looking at these various strategies, let's get stuck into the bread and butter aspects of, of sports nutrition in terms of fueling and hydration. So if we start off thinking about fueling, and we mean carbohydrate here, there could be both fueling prior to exercise. So what we mean by that is carb loading before a particular event or we're looking at carb intake during an event, a, a race. So what does the evidence say here? And are there any specific caveats we need to keep in mind for these types of strategies? Yeah, I'll start off with the caveats because I think that's really important here before we get into it. I guess the caveats around carbohydrate feeding, whether it's before exercise or during exercise, is that it assumes that you can tolerate that carbohydrate without having any unwanted side effects or you know, gut symptoms. It assumes that you can digest and absorb that carbohydrate normally or properly and that you can metabolize the amount of carbohydrate that you're actually consuming. So, you know, you can put carbohydrate in your mouth, but it doesn't necessarily mean it ends up in your muscles and being turned into fuel. And so if there's a, a difference there, it might mean that that strategy isn't going to work to the same degree as it might in a study of people that, that do consume lots of carbs all the time, for example. So gut tolerance may be an issue, metabolism may be an issue, particularly for people that follow you know, a lower carb diet, maybe with more fat. And this has been shown, we spoke to Louise Burke back in our very first ever episode about you know some of her earliest studies where they did a seven-day low-carb, high-fat diet, but then carb-loaded at the end of that and then looked at performance. And what they found is even though they were carb-loaded, they still couldn't utilize that carbohydrate properly because one day wasn't enough to reverse the adaptation that had happened to the low-carb diet to, to bring in all the things that bring that carbohydrate into the muscle and turn it into energy. So, yeah, I guess the, these numbers are probably assuming that people eat regularly a decent amount of carbohydrate. But if we start off with the carb loading, so the day before exercise, obviously it's going to be a little bit different depending on what the exercise is, but generally you tend to see a performance benefit of about 2 to 4% in sort of a time trial type exercise compared to a lower but not super low carb intake. So carb loading, probably somewhere around seven to 10 grams of carbs per kilo of body weight over at least one day. You might do that for two or three, as opposed to a carb intake of maybe five, maybe six grams per kilo per day is often what the, the control is in those studies. Some of the studies have reported greater effects than that two to 4% or different effects depending on whether the people are less trained or less fit. And the benefits really only apply to events that are lasting more than about 90 minutes in duration. On the flip side of this, and we talked about this in the, um, the podcast in episode 9A with Dr. Jose Areta, there may be at the upper end of duration, the, the ultra distance events, less benefit from carb loading or possibly even no benefit, but we can't really study it. So it's hard to know for sure. So it is something to keep in mind there. In terms of carbohydrate during exercise, there is quite a lot of variation in studies. Basically, what they do show, though, is that there doesn't seem to be any benefit of high-dose carbohydrate intakes for events less than 60 minutes in duration. Uh, and there are very few studies that look at this for exercise performance of more than four hours duration. As I said, most of the performance tests are kind of 20 to 60 minutes uh, with maybe a preload on the front of that, but generally, you know, less than four hours in total. I guess perhaps the best known study looking at sort of high carbohydrate intakes during exercise 
is a 2008 paper from Kevin Carroll and Aska Yerkendrup, who were both at the University of Birmingham at that time. Kevin now works at the English Institute of Sport, and Aska we've had on the podcast, actually, in, in episode 39A. He works in a variety of different areas. He's got his fingers in lots of different pies including the Yumbo Visma cycling team. He does some work with Red Bull. He's worked with uh, Harley Gabrisolesi before and at Loughborough University. But they did a study which is kind of considered the classic study of 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate from a glucose-fructose mix compared to 90 grams from glucose only or zero grams of carbohydrate. And this was a a two-hour constant effort cycling preload and then a 40-kilometer cycling time trial on the end of that, I'm pretty sure. And they showed a a benefit of about 8% in the glucose-fructose mix compared to glucose only and a 19% benefit compared to water. So massive benefits. But actually, when you look at the meta-analyses of these carbohydrate studies, this study sticks way out compared to the others. None of the other studies have seen this level of benefit in them. Typically, what you're more likely to see is about a 3 to 5% benefit from sort of high-dose carbohydrate versus not consuming anything at all during exercise. Uh, if you're consuming a smaller amount of carbohydrate, you can still get benefit. There does seem to be a dose response up to about 80 grams an hour. Uh, beyond that, the only study that sort of looked at the dose response didn't see any further benefit, but it also may be because, you know, traditionally people haven't been sort of gut trained to consume more than that during exercise. That's happening a lot more now, particularly in pro cycling, for example. And so you may actually see the benefits, but we don't know for sure because that that research is, you know, 10 or 15 years old now and that sort of level of gut training just wasn't done back then. So, yeah, we don't really know for sure at this stage. All right, so now let's take a turn and and talk about hydration and electrolytes, which is a little bit of your thing here, Al. What's the potential benefit of optimal versus poor hydration? And again, any caveats around this type of research we need to consider. So if we start off first with fluid before exercise... Yeah, so we discussed this with Dr. Chris Irwin in episode 52A of the podcast, which was our first episode of 2023, and we were looking at that concept of hyperhydration. So if you actually overhydrate and use something like glycerol or sodium to try and retain that fluid so you don't just pee it out, um, is there a benefit there? And Chris and I have worked on a meta-analysis on that, which is still not published, but there did seem to be a benefit there. It was fairly small. Because of the nature of the studies, we couldn't do a direct comparison and work out an exact percentage number, but it would seem to be probably well less than 5%, probably down around more than 1%, 2%, I would suspect. It is hard to compare across studies, though, as I said, because the, the methods used are sort of inconsistent. The other thing I'd say here is that not all studies have found a benefit from hyperhydration. Uh, so although it's hard to decipher in research, it's certainly still recommend it even if you don't go down the hyperhydration route to begin exercise adequately hydrated regardless of what we call euhydrated to prevent those sort of performance declines or any other risks like issues like gastrointestinal issues that can occur because of dehydration uh, and again in episode 52a we talked about what that looks like and how you assess you know your hydration prior to exercise so if you want to know more about that you can go back and listen to that that episode And so now what about fluid during exercise? 
Yeah, so we discussed this one back in episode 3A of the podcast with Dr. Lewis James from Loughborough University, and he's done you know, some of the really important research recently in this space. So I guess he made the point that you know most of the studies in this field, apart from three, are not blinded. In other words, people know how much fluid they're getting because it's very hard to hide the volume of fluid that you're consuming. So that's one issue with a lot of the studies in this area. The other issue is that in most of them, it's not a dose-response study. And what I mean by that is there's two trials. In one trial, you replace every drop of fluid you lose or close to it. And in the other study, often you don't get any fluid at all. And so you create this big contrast in hydration, but it's not really a real-world prospect. Like in no race would people deliberately go into it and choose to deny themselves fluid or people take away the fluid and say, no, you're not allowed to drink at all. And so, you know, is that a fair comparison? Possibly not. Um, So Lewis, uh, and there's another group in America, Lewis has done two studies now, and the group in America have done one where they've used a nasogastric tube to put the fluid in, which means that the people don't actually know how much fluid they're getting during exercise, so it can be blinded. All of these studies are cycling studies in the lab, and there's a few different sort of protocols, but typically kind of like a two-hour preload at about 50% of someone's sort of power output at, at VO2 max, and then a time trial effort that lasts about 15 minutes roughly. And usually in that case, they get a uh, like a fluid or body mass loss of sort of 2 to 3% and then compare that to pretty much complete fluid replacement. And they find in those studies, I think the smallest benefit of hydration was about 4%, and at the upper end, it was about 10 or 11%. So it seems to kind of sit in that range for that type of exercise. Now, again, that that performance study is a, a pretty high-intensity one. Like it's an all-out, you know, it's an effort of 15 minutes. How much can you do in 15 minutes of work, which is very different to how much could you do over a 180K bike leg of an Ironman, for example, where the intensity is much lower. So I suspect there may be differences there where you know, hydration doesn't have as big an influence on performance in maybe some of those more drawn out, lower pace performances compared to sort of those high intensity ones where you need more blood circulation, you're producing more body heat, you're demanding more oxygen and nutrient delivery to the muscles and that kind of thing. So yeah, there may be differences there, but at this stage, we can't really quantify that. Lewis also mentioned in that episode that there may be differences in the point of, of dehydration where people's performance starts to get impacted. So Steph, if you and I both went out for a run on a hot day, you know, one of us might get, you know, you might get impacted performance-wise at one and a half percent body mass loss, but I might be able to go to three percent body mass loss before my performance is impacted, or vice versa. And so there may be individual differences in this as well. And we don't currently have a good way to study that or confirm it or, or try and quantify that in different people, which is a bit of a problem. There is only really one dose response study, so comparing different amounts of fluid replacement rather than just all versus nothing. And that is an unblinded study that suggested that there was maybe a threshold approach to hydration. So rather than, you know, getting progressively better, the more you drank, it was sort of like, well, once you got to a certain point, your performance didn't decline, but it didn't, you know, it didn't improve any further from there as well. So this relationship with hydration and performance may be more of a threshold thing. As long as you're below that threshold, you're fine, rather than a the more you have, the better it gets kind of effect. Yeah. And what about the one that we still see a lot of athletes doing where they're pumping um, sodium 
into themselves during a, a race. Is there any benefit to them doing this for their performance? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we have spoken about this on the podcast, and I should know the number because it's my own episode, Steph. I'm the guest. <laughs> I can't actually remember what the number was, so maybe you can look it up while I'm talking. Yep. But, yeah, obviously this is my area of research. So I did a, a systematic review of this in 2018, uh, and I'm not aware of any sort of newer studies that have come around since then. At that time, we could only find five studies that have sort of directly looked at sodium and performance. Uh, and only one of those actually showed a beneficial effect on performance. Uh, it was uh, giving sodium capsules versus placebo capsules during an actual half Ironman event in Spain, and they found an 8% performance difference between those with an advantage in the group that had the salt capsules. Now, what was interesting in this one is this came on the back of them drinking a lot more fluid. So when you give sodium in a study, you know, depending on how you design the study, you may decide... I want to look at the independent effect of sodium. So they're going to drink a prescribed amount of fluid. It's going to be the same. And then I want to see what the difference is. Or I can give them the sodium and then let the sodium potentially influence how much fluid they want to drink because they're thirstier or not. So in this study, they actually drank more. They got a performance benefit. I suspect the benefit was from the hydration because in other studies where they don't drink more or they only drink a tiny bit more, you don't see a performance benefit. So I suspect there's no independent benefit of sodium here, but if it does encourage people to drink more and they need to drink more from a hydration point of view, then there may be an indirect benefit here. And Steph's just saying it's episode 47A that we talked about this in. And what about the combo strategy? Yeah, this is an interesting question that comes back to what I was saying in the intro about you know stacking multiple strategies together and, and what benefit you get from that. So there's not a lot of studies that have looked at this around things like carbohydrate and fluid. There is a little bit more on the supplements, which we'll get to shortly. But the ones that have been done, the best example I could find of this was from back in 2012, where they actually got people to come in and, and do a um, two and a half hour ride at 70% of their VO2 max, so kind of moderate intensity, and then a 40 mile time trial on the end of that, which is about 64, 65 kilometers roughly. And in that study, they got them to come in and actually do that while consuming their own self-chosen strategy. So what would you normally do for this? And that obviously is going to vary a lot from person to person. And then they got them to come back and said, well, we're going to give you what we think is an optimal strategy. And we're going to see what the difference is between these two. So it's not that well controlled from a study point of view, because obviously in the self-chosen, there's a lot of variation. And there's also you know, potentially a placebo effect from, well, these people tell me this is optimal, so it should be better. So it's hard to, you know, take this a little bit with a grain of salt. But the optimal strategy that they gave here, and we don't, you know, unless you get into the details of this, know, you know, is this really optimal or not? But they were giving them basically a litre an hour of fluid. They were giving them 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate. They were supplementing with five milligrams per kilo of caffeine, which is sort of a moderate to high dose, I suppose. And the fluid had 50 milligrams of sodium per 100 mils in it as well. So it was kind of those four things or what they were quote unquote optimizing. And so the benefit of performance there was about 6%. So this is another example of where you've got multiple strategies, but you're not getting a directly additive effect of all those strategies. You're not adding 2% plus 4% plus 5% and getting 11 so yeah, it, it's an interesting study, but it's not that well controlled. There's a few caveats around it, but I think it's a, a nice example that I, I suspect the carbohydrate and the fluid might be additive, but then with some of the supplements, they're probably not so additive. 
So let's talk about one of those strategies now in terms of caffeine that we haven't spoken about yet. Yeah. So caffeine, I guess, is one of the most commonly consumed, you know, sort of what we call ergogenic supplements, so supplements designed to improve performance directly. And generally speaking, you tend to see benefits from caffeine supplementation of about 2 to 4% in time trials. Uh, and this is with caffeine doses of about 3 to 6 milligrams per kilo of body weight. And so for most people, obviously, depending on body weight, it's going to be anywhere from sort of 150, maybe up to 450 milligrams of caffeine in the most part. Of all the potential ergogenic supplements, caffeine is probably the one with the most consistent findings across studies, across sexes, and across different exercise intensities and durations. It seems to be equally effective in the the shorter high-intensity stuff and in the more prolonged stuff as well. It's also, I guess, one of the easiest supplements to take because it's just a single dose. You can take that in tablet form. You can have it as gum. You can have it in your drinks or your gels or whatever. And in the majority of people at at that dose, the side effects are relatively minimal. So it's usually a pretty practical, easy supplement to take, few side effects in the majority of people. So for most people, it's probably their their first go-to supplement for that reason. Mm, It's quite enjoyable to take. Well, it depends on how you take it. (laughs) I always enjoyed it in my races, yeah. Yeah. Um, So what about nitrate or, as people would know it, in terms of beet juice, beat it? Yeah, yep. So this is an interesting one. You know, a lot of the early studies were were quite promising on this and then it kind of went through this period where it was like, oh, okay, well, maybe not. So if you look at the meta-analyses, they do tend to find an overall improvement of about 1% to 3%, so a little bit smaller than the strategies that we've talked about so far. But this is in time trials of less than 30 minutes, so typically 5 to 30-minute efforts. So when you start looking at time trials that are longer than 30 minutes, you actually don't see significant effects of nitrate. So the thinking now with nitrate is it's probably best for those high-intensity, short-duration type efforts. So in running, it might be the, the sort of the middle distance, you know, 5Ks and, and that kind of thing. For cycling, it might be, you know, track cycling, for example, is where it probably gets used a little bit more than than road cycling. So all of that kind of thing. A lot of people don't like the taste. And the other thing that's been found is that the effects are probably smaller in high-level athletes and the, the effects are bigger in recreational athletes. And that may be simply because, you know, nitrate intake from food is greater in elite athletes or there's pathways that nitrate acts on that improve performance that are just better trained and so you don't need the supplementation to kind of give that a push along as well so yeah i mean there's probably still some effects there but it's probably for the shorter sharper events what we don't have a lot of data is okay what if you have a longer endurance event but then you have some of these short sharp efforts within the the longer event things like road cycling for example Uh, i don't think we have good data on that yet as far as i'm aware Creatine, we, we spoke about that one not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, back in episode 43 with um, Brian Saunders at the University of Sao Paulo. Currently, there's, as Brian said, there's really no evidence that creatine will help with endurance performance directly. It may help with repeated sprint efforts if that's something that's relevant to you. Uh, I guess the effect here may be indirect improving your capacity in the gym if you're doing strength training. And maybe that will translate into improvements in performance. But I haven't seen any studies that have attempted to quantify that in terms of, you know, take creatine with a 12-week gym program and at the end of that, is your endurance performance better as a result of that? 
better gym program, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I think the jury's still a little bit out on that. I think there's potential benefits from creatine, particularly if you're doing some sort of strength training as well as your, your specific sport training, but hard to quantify that in terms of performance at this stage. And let's get stuck into this couple of the buffers now. So looking first at beta-alanine. Yeah, so beta-alanine is one that we haven't talked about previously on the podcast or or buffers in general we haven't really talked about. It's designed to buffer, so essentially react with um, the hydrogen ions that our bodies produce during very high-intensity exercise. And so that buffer works within the muscle itself. The other buffer, sodium bicarbonate, works within the blood. And so not surprisingly, the benefits of this are going to come from those short duration, very high intensity exercise events. So we're talking about events that last anywhere from one to 10 minutes. So for a lot of our listeners, that's probably completely irrelevant. The benefits when you look at the review papers for non-elite athletes tends to be around two two to three percent, but less than one percent in elite athletes. But again, in elite sport, a difference of half to one percent is potentially very worthwhile. So it's not to say that it's irrelevant, it's just smaller. Um, There are some studies of beta-alanine in longer durations of exercise, but the results are really mixed. There's a 10-kilometer running study, for example, that showed a benefit of 6.5%, but other studies have showed no effect of beta-alanine supplementation at all in those. And then there might be a theoretical effect of sort of short, hard efforts that are interspersed within an endurance event, so things like road cycling or mountain biking, probably more so than running or triathlon, where it's maybe more of a constant pace type event. But I guess the other thing I'd say with beta-alanine, thinking about that return on investment, is it is one of probably the the less practical supplements because you do have to take three or four serves of it a day over probably six to ten weeks to really get the the benefit from it. You can try and load faster, but you run into some pretty nasty side effects. So generally, you have to spread it out over a longer period of time. And so it just becomes a pain to take for a lot of people. And for a questionable benefit, a lot of people decide it's it's not worth it for them. Mm, Yep. And sodium bicarbonate? Yeah, so as I said before, this is another buffer, but this time it's buffering in the blood for those hydrogen ions. Uh, Again, the benefits are going to be for those sort of one to 10 minute all out efforts or possibly efforts that might mimic that within the context of a longer event. So an example of that is there is a, a trial that sort of gave people bicarbonate supplementation before a three hour simulated cycling race. And they showed an improvement in 90-second sprint power at the end of that race of about 3%. Actual time might be a little bit less than that because that's just the power output. It doesn't necessarily translate into time perfectly. I guess sodium bicarb does have that benefit. It is a one-off dosing strategy, unlike the beta-alanine, where you've got to take it multiple times a day over several weeks. So that is an advantage of bicarbonate. I guess the downside is that there is a risk of pretty severe GI issues if you don't quite get it right particularly if you don't consume it with enough food or fluids. And I'll never forget, I was doing a nutrition session for the Cycling Australia Coaches course. This is 10 years ago or something now. And I remember we're talking about supplements and I asked the guys in the room, girls who are all studying to be coaches, who most of them were ex-athletes themselves. And I said, well, has anyone tried bicarbonate in their own careers? And one guy put his hand up, I won't say who it is, but he's a a well-known Olympian in track cycling. And I said, well, what did you find with bicarbonate? What was your experience? And he said, well, this is like you know, a while ago before we'd kind of optimized the, 
the protocols for taking it. But he said, look, I would sit on the start line and I would not know if I was going to break a world record or poo my pants. <laughs> that was kind of, yeah, it was like a gamble for him. I definitely think we've got better at this. We're much better at, you know, working out how much food and fluid to take with it to, to prevent those issues. But certainly, historically, that has been a major problem with bicarb. Mm, yep, yep. And I guess also like with some of those ones that are we've spoken about that are potentially beneficial in those sort of shorter high-intensity periods in terms of our listeners, uh, I mean, it might not be relevant in the event, so to speak, but like we've just mentioned with creatine, it might be beneficial in some of the training sessions where then yeah. they can potentially push harder in those sessions and then therefore gradually improve like that's kind of a theoretical way of thinking Correct. about it yeah yeah and certainly that you know the buffers are used a lot in swimming for that reason mm, yeah yeah and so what about now in terms of a combination of of supplements so the so-called stacking effect yeah. So yeah, generally the studies show that there really is very rarely an additive effect of these kind of supplements that we've just talked about. And so adding multiple supplements generally doesn't give you any benefit over taking one of those supplements on its own. There's theories about why that might be the case. If you go back to episode 34A, where we discussed sort of supplement use with Greg Shaw from Swimming Australia, he sort of mentioned that you know most of these supplements are simply optimizing the storage and availability of a nutrient or a component in food. And so the effect of these supplements may also depend on whether that component is already optimized in your body anyway. So for example, creatine you know, comes from meat, fish, and chicken. So vegans are probably have lower creatine stores and may benefit more from creatine supplementation than that synthetic creatine, so it's vegan. Um, or something like beet juice, if people have a very low vegetable intake, they may have less nitrate stores and actually get more benefit out of beet juice compared to someone who eats a lot of veggies and therefore has those greater nitrate stores. And so the elite athletes, for example, just because they eat more generally may have better nitrate stores because of that. So yeah, it's an interesting one. But I guess where I come to from that perspective is like if you're going to look at those kind of supplements pick one and go with it and, and pick the one that you think is most suited to your event. Pick the one that's most suited to you in terms of convenience, practicality, side effects, etc. Mm, yeah. Yep. And I mean, I think as we know with supplements, we can start off really excited about it and be good with taking them, but it just wanes, even though we might know the benefit. Um, I know elite level athletes, they're going to be onto it more so, yeah. but they're still tricky. But like just my partner the other day thought she needed to take creatine, right? And I was like, now you got to promise me if we're going to spend this money, like you are <laughs> going to take it, right? And there's three packets still in the pantry four months later. <laughs> yeah. So yep. that's the other thing is, you know, if there's a benefit, you like it, you, you bloody well need to take it. Um, yep. <laughs> so let's talk about now the various cooling strategies that have a, a kind of a nutrition component to them. So the obvious one is pre-cooling with slushies that we've discussed previously with researcher Meg Ross and Tokyo Olympian Sinead Diver in episode 28A and B. What's our thoughts on this one? 
Yeah, so th this is a couple of elements from the pre-cooling component. Often they get merged together in the review papers that kind of bring all the evidence together on this. So sometimes it's cold drinks, so just very cold liquids that are just above freezing, or it can be the ice slushies that are obviously uh, frozen. The overall effect here of having that before exercise on time trial performers in the heat seems to be somewhere between about 1% and 6%. The average is about 4 just over 4%. And these are time trial performances um, in cycling, sort of 15 to 45 kilometer time trials. That's kind of the range of where it's been studied and in running 5Ks. So these are generally sort of 15 to 60 minute efforts in a hot environment. So one thing to keep in mind here is that in the longer events, which probably represent most of our listeners, the effects might be smaller or in some cases even non-existent in those longer events. Uh, that's because the cooling effect wears off quickly, but also the pace is obviously lower in those events because they're over several hours rather than a few minutes. And so the amount of heat that you produce per minute or per hour is lower. And we know in research that the final core temperature in those longer events is going to be lower than what it is in the, the shorter, higher intensity events in the same weather conditions. And uh, what about menthol as a cold perception strategy rather than something that actually lowers the body temperature? Yeah, so we discussed this one with Meg as well. And there is mixed results here. Some show an improvement in time trial performance of about 3 to 6%. And this is in a 20-kilometer cycling time trial or running studies of sort of 3Ks and 5Ks. So again, shorter, higher-intensity events. The recent study, we I think we spoke to Meg about this on the podcast, but it wasn't actually finished at that time. But she's just recently published this, a study that looked at gels that have menthol added to them. So this was done in partnership with Goo, and that actually found that uh, they didn't improve performance. So they did a 40-minute run at, I think it was 60% of VO2 max, so kind of a moderate pace. And then at the end, they did a distance trial. So how far can you run in 20 minutes? And they found no benefit from the menthol in those gels. And what about in terms of those kind of health-related issues like red S, gut issues, cramping, iron, or even vitamin D deficiency? Yeah. Look, I think these are issues that are very individual. So it's hard to quantify them. It's hard to get a whole group of people together and study it as well. I would say there's probably likely in a lot of cases to be significantly larger performance benefits from some of these strategies. And in some cases, the difference between finishing a race and DNFing, if you think about things like cramping and gut issues and that kind of thing. So yes, yeah, so sometimes it can be that or it can be coming back to a high level of performance. And we had the great episode 7B with Aniko Lanos where we had that great interview with him about how he was able to turn around his pro career from you know DNFing and poor performance to actually coming back and winning Ironman Arizona within the space of six months of starting to do some sort of targeted gut training after having investigated his issues. I guess it's also, you know, as I said, it's difficult to quantify these, but I think ultimately that doesn't matter. You'd want to do these strategies anyway, both from a health point of view and just for your enjoyment of the sport, both in training and racing. So I think these strategies are kind of the no-brainer ones and often the, the first ones that you would do because they are affecting things so greatly. Yeah. And so wrapping up now, can we tell our wonderful listeners 
that it may be worth spending a little bit of money and going to see a wonderful sports dietitian um, and or just investing in these sports nutrition strategies rather than potentially forking out a lot of money for a new bike or a groovy helmet or some, you know, really speedy running shoes. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, a, that's a really good point. You know, I guess if we think about this, you know, there's the benefits from those big rocks of sports nutrition, the fueling and hydration. I would suspect that they're likely to be additive and we're looking at about 2 to 5% benefit each in terms of time trial performances. The benefits from supplements are likely to be smaller, kind of in the 1% to 4% range, and they don't appear to be additive. We need to keep in mind, though, that these numbers are averages and they're specific to certain types of athletes, certain types of events, and certain types of conditions that were used in those studies. So they are generalizations, I guess, at best. Uh, as a generalization, I guess the more recreational athletes seem to find the biggest benefits from these strategies, probably because much of this is already optimized in elite athletes, you know, their baseline intakes of things, their training in terms of training those different pathways within the body and those kind of aspects as well. In almost all of these studies, the performance trial aspect is less than 60 minutes for practical reasons that I explained before. So even if there is a, a two-hour preload beforehand or even as much as five hours, the actual performance is generally targeting specific intensities that aren't always relevant to a lot of our listeners. So we can't be certain that the, the numbers I've just quoted in this episode will hold in those longer, more sustained efforts like long course triathlon, marathon or ultra running, um, you know, grand fondos on the bike and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it's the best information that we have available. And it's really not practical to do those kind of studies of like a 10 hour time trial or something like that. So I guess if I was prioritizing these studies, these strategies, sorry, I would start off certainly with those health issues that prevent you from even training properly to begin with, or, or are causing you to DNF your races. So looking at things like energy availability and REDS, looking at gut issues, injury, illness, those kind of things. I guess when you've sorted those out and you've looked at the DNF stuff, the gut issues, the cramping, then you can start to look at those big rocks that apply to almost everyone in every situation. So the carbohydrate fueling and the hydration that's appropriate for that event. And if you're not sure whether it's appropriate for that event, as you said, that's where professional advice might be really helpful. And then after that, you can maybe look at the stuff that's relevant in certain situations and sodium maybe in the ultra stuff where the fluid turnover is just so massive after so many hours, but probably not relevant otherwise. And then finally, those supplements that might give you that last sort of 1% to 3%, but knowing that more of those supplements isn't necessarily going to be better. So choosing those ones that are easy, practical, cost-effective, and well-tolerated for you is going to be the main thing there. Awesome. Good, good wrap up. Um, so now what I wanted to shoot off to is to do a bonus round for you. So I wanted to know what's the best compliment you've ever gotten apart from the ones that I, I give you all the time now? Oh, good question. I don't know. Stumped you? I've never really given that. Yeah, you have stumped me. Come on, I'm sure your wife gives you compliments all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, no, I'm stumped. Sorry, I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> pass on that one. All right, see if you can yep. think of one. Um, what about this one? See if you come to this one quicker. What's an insult you've received that you are proud of? Oh, 
probably something like being too competitive. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's that's a good one. That's a good one. I'd be mm. proud of that. And then, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Meal or food? You can choose. All right. Well, if it was food, I'd probably choose vanilla ice cream. Yep. If it was a meal, maybe pizza. Yep. 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 Um, any particular type of pizza we're talking about here, Al? No, as long as it doesn't have olives or anchovies or something on it. Not, not fussy at all. Um, no. And what did you think of Petrarca's goal in the last 41 <laughs> seconds of Melbourne's match against Carlton last weekend? Touched or not touched? To the naked eye, I would say not touched. The, the Carlton player was pretty convinced that it was. He was gesturing big time to the umpire. Uh, the replay was inconclusive, but I would say from my view of the replay, I would have said not touched. The player said afterwards that he was adamant that it was touched. So whether he was just saying that to kind of justify the shenanigans mm. or whether it was genuinely touched, I guess we'll never know. No, no. And final question, will you be watching the Matildas tonight? I will. I actually had a client originally booked tonight. They emailed me the other day and said, can we move the appointment so I can watch the game? And I wasn't complaining because my kids want to stay up and watch it. And, of course, I want to watch it as well. So, yeah, of course. Win, win, uh, win. Awesome. So that that was great. Uh, next episode, Al. Yeah, so next episode will be episode 63. And we're going to look at something a little bit different. And I guess as we're coming towards the end of summer in the Northern Hemisphere and the end of winter in the Southern Hemisphere, I think it's a really relevant time to look at this. And so our question is, should I be supplementing with vitamin D? And our special guest is going to be Dr. Dan Owens from Liverpool John Moores University in the UK, who's done a lot of research around vitamin D and athletes over a number of years now. Mm. So it'll be good. Yeah. One of my um, favourite episodes this year, actually. And so just wrapping up, a, a reminder, if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Thank you to those who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds to spare, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And those that leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And remember also that there's now 63 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you'd like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or for their racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. But otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple weeks' time. Will do. See you then, everyone. 